As I was saying, <laughs> there's this disreputable Hebrew prophet from Galilee who lived a little over 2,000 years ago that I'd like to talk to you about. My uncle was a pastor, and whenever someone asked him what the sermon on Sunday was about, he'd say, it's about Jesus, and it's about 20 minutes. <laughs> it's good to keep things simple. I do want to take a moment to offer my gratitude to the staff, to the deacons, to the lay leaders, and to you, the congregation and community of Myers Park Baptist Church, for the gift of my sabbatical. It was a life-changing time of rest and renewal and reconnection for me and for my family. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for that gift. I've always wanted to know what it was like to come to church only at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and I have to say, it's pretty fantastic. You get to jump from birth to rebirth, pageantry to pageantry, celebration to celebration. These are the times of the year when it feels like the story of Jesus shakes off the dust of history, jumps up from the page, and comes to life before our eyes. We light candles in the darkness, we wave palm branches and sing Hosanna, we ring Alleluia bells, we gather like actors on a stage to embody the narrative, reenact the story, perform the text. We do this not only because we believe in the power of shared stories and collective memory, but because we know that scripture is not simply meant to be read or heard, but lived and lived together. The story of Jesus is like a script that is brought to life when we act out the scenes. And people in the first century understood this in a way that we can barely comprehend today. They had no phones or internet, television, movies, radio, or books for that matter. They had stories. And because most people could not read, they fell in love with stories and memorized stories by hearing them again and again around the dinner table, in the streets, at the theater, in the synagogue. Stories with great power, not only because of the magnitude of what occurred in the past, but because they believed those stories had the power to be brought to life again. The word fulfilled that we hear over and over again in Scripture didn't mean to make predictions come true. It meant to reenact stories from history. People believed stories of great importance could be repeated. In fact, it was the sincere and ardent hope of the Jewish people living under Roman occupation that the story of Exodus, God's deliverance of the people from Egyptian empire, would happen again. That is what they prayed for and hoped for every year when three to 4,000 people from all over Judea flooded into Jerusalem to remember the Exodus story by celebrating Passover. At the time of Jesus, though, the Holy Land was crawling with militant Jewish groups engaged in a prolonged guerrilla-style insurgency against the Roman occupation. The district of Galilee was the primary center of revolutionary activity. Every Passover, the Romans had to reinforce their garrison in Jerusalem because, as fate would have it, another would-be Jewish revolutionary from Galilee would enter the city at Passover and try to overthrow their oppressors. Some succeeded, 
most failed. And even those who succeeded only held power for a moment before they were destroyed. The year Jesus was born, two popular Jewish teachers named Judas and Matthias incited their students to go into the temple during Passover and remove the golden eagle that Herod had placed at the entrance as a tribute to Rome. The teachers and the students were captured and burned alive, which provoked a citywide riot. But Herod responded by crucifying 2,000 protesters. It was one of several times the people's hopes for deliverance from Rome coincided with the Passover to become a political reenactment of the Exodus narrative but with disastrous consequences. As another in a long line of Jewish revolutionaries from Galilee, it is not surprising that Jesus carefully orchestrated a theatrical entry into the city of Jerusalem at Passover. Scholars have discovered that at least 12 examples of military leaders exist who made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, including Alexander the Great, Apollonius, Simon Maccabee, Marcus Agrippa, and likely Pontius Pilate. It was a familiar occurrence that followed a particular pattern, and Jesus was meticulous in his own preparations for this entry that he was going to make. He wanted to reenact important stories in Hebrew culture and carefully planned a dramatic performance of the highest symbolism to shock the authorities and galvanize the people. And as he entered Jerusalem, Jesus intentionally embodied and reenacted a constellation of scriptures. He sent his disciples to get a donkey so that he could return to Jerusalem the same way that Moses returned to Egypt on the back of a donkey, signaling that he too was coming as a deliverer. The donkey also fulfilled Zechariah 9, which said, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow and command peace to the nations. And the stunning part of this story is that the crowds knew exactly what role they were supposed to play in the drama that Jesus was unfolding. When they saw him coming into the city on a donkey, they knew what story he was reenacting and immediately responded by reenacting scriptures of their own. They lined the streets and acted out three scenes from scripture, one from Leviticus 23 by waving branches, one from Psalm 118 by shouting, Hosanna, which means deliver us or save us now, and another from 2 Kings by laying their cloaks on the road. They were expecting Jesus to imitate Moses, to liberate them from oppression as many other kings and revolutionaries had. It's what they had been longing for and hoping for, especially at Passover as they remembered the story of Exodus. But there's something up here. Matthew's quotation of the prophet Zechariah is missing some words, which was Matthew's way of cluing us in to some critical differences between Jesus and the Jewish revolutionaries who came before him. Matthew omitted the phrase, triumphant and victorious is he. Omitting words is a sneaky little practice that the gospel writers employed for the purpose of rewarding a close reading. They reveal subtle nuances about who Jesus was and how he overturned people's expectation. These redactions are extremely important because they help us see that something different is going on here than has happened before. Something new. Jesus was embodying and reenacting critical moments in Israel's history, but with a twist. He was improvising 
on an old story in a new way and giving it a new meaning. It's sort of like Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner, or Aretha Franklin's version of Respect, or Tina Turner's Proud Mary, or Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, or Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Jesus was singing an old song in such a new way, it became a new song. All the old lyrics about triumph and victory and conquest and vengeance were gone. In their place was a powerful enunciation of a surprising new theme, humility and peace. This was no triumphal entry. By riding a donkey through the Mount of Olives, cleansing the temple, quoting Jeremiah, amplifying the voices of the children against the anger of the religious leaders, Jesus made it clear he would be different than the Jewish revolutionaries from Galilee that came before him. Yes, he would hold the authorities responsible for their corruption of the temple and the oppression of the people, but he would not take up the sword against them. He would not mount a military coup or a war against Rome. He would not use the tools of the oppressor to free his people or participate in the cycle of endless violence. He would not turn away from the traditional, he would turn away from the traditional path of armed revolution. He would not walk the way of conquest, but the way of the cross. But when it became clear to the people that Jesus was not going to fulfill their hopes for a violent revolution to deliver them from the authorities and their Roman oppressors, they turned on him. No conquest materialized. No uprising occurred. And in their eyes, Jesus was just another failure, another imposter messiah, just one more in a long line of disappointments for the people of Israel. He refused to be their Moses, Joshua or David or Simon Maccabees. And so it became easier for the priests to devise a plan to get rid of him. And when the people saw that Jesus was offering them a kind of liberation without triumph or victory or revenge or retribution against their oppressors, they wanted no part of it. Even his own disciples betrayed and abandoned and denied him. He didn't materialize into the Messiah they wanted. And in less than five days, he went from riding a donkey to carrying a cross. We look at this story today, as people in the 21st century, and we love to judge the authorities and the religious leaders and the crowd and his disciples, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know deep down, we likely would have turned on him and abandoned him too. Are we humble enough to admit that? With wars raging around the world today and innocent civilians and children dying in Yemen and Ethiopia, Afghanistan and Ukraine, what are we to do with a Messiah who will not take up arms to defend the poor and oppressed, who rejects violence, who rejects military revolution? Would we really want to follow such a Messiah if we were among the oppressed? Would we really stick with him when push comes to shove? I have to admit, this year, as I've reflected on this story, I'm not sure I wouldn't have sold him out for 30 pieces of silver like Judas. I'm not sure I wouldn't have run away like the other disciples. I'm not sure I wouldn't have denied him like Peter to save myself. 
I'm not sure I wouldn't have condemned him like the crowd. This is the moral and existential challenge of Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Good Friday. It's the litmus test of our faith. When we hear this story and examine our souls, we must ask, what would I have done? Jesus' journey from Bethany to Jerusalem and from Hosanna to the cross was a path of radical humility. He was enacting that key part of the prophet Zechariah's vision. Lo, your king is coming to you humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Not triumphant and victorious. We've redacted that. Humble. As the haunting words of the great hymn by Henry Hart Millen say, Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp. Ride on to die. We shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' radical humility, should we? His entire life is a master class in this virtue. He was born in a barn, in a know-nothing town, to a poor, unknown, and unwed teenager, raised in Nazareth where nothing good ever came from, and called his disciples from the backwater armpit of the empire called Galilee. He humbly allowed himself to be baptized by John and taught that anyone who wanted to be great must become like a child and the servant of all. He praised women constantly as having great faith. He touched the sick. He cared for the poor. He welcomed tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. He told parables that lifted up the lowly and instructed his disciples to take the lesser seats at the banquet when they go and said that whoever exalts themselves will be humbled and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. As a teacher, he bent down and washed his disciples' feet. And even on the cross, he proclaimed, God forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was the paradigmatic fulfillment of Micah 6.8, our favorite text, which says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? Which is why Paul famously claimed he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Radical humility was Jesus' way of life, and it is the way of life we are called to as followers of of Jesus today. However, humility is somewhat deceptive. Those who claim to be humble are usually not. And in our world today, humility is both appealing and appalling, admired and abhorred. Many who claim to know the way of humility are false teachers. And historically, humility has been the lightning rod of the virtues. Under attack one century, celebrated in another, no fewer than Aristotle, Hume, Nietzsche, and Machiavelli thought it was a sure way to fail as a human being. Aristotle famously claimed that humility was not only a vice, but a despised category of people. It was understood by the Greeks and Romans as evidence of something corrosive and destructive. Many philosophers tried over the years to remove humility from the list of virtues, and yet Jesus and the early church held up humility as the highest of the virtues, the heart of the faith, which was a massive countercultural contrast to the dominant society of the day. But what did Jesus mean by humility? It wasn't self-deprecation or low self-esteem. It wasn't modesty, certainly not false modesty. Humility is not a psychology as much as it is an anthropology. 
an understanding of the human person. It begins with the belief that we are fundamentally vulnerable, needy, and dependent creatures. Humility comes from the same root word as human, humus, which means close to the ground, to the dirt, to what we have in common with all other creatures on the earth. It is the belief in the primal and universal equality of all people. It's not the not self-effacing, demure, or a debasing persona. It's a way of life that admits humbly, someone came before me. I am following in another's footsteps, and there will be others who come after me. Humility rejects the false projections of the ego, resting in the essence of what we truly are, our humanity, not trying to be something that we're not, or put ourselves over or below, or control or manipulate others. Henry Nowen describes humility as becoming a child of God all over again. That second innocence that occurs when we choose to wake up from our ego and return to the original sincerity and wonder we had as children. Because the self-importance of our ego often blocks us from seeing the goodness in others and our world. Humility is not just the bedrock, though, of Christian spirituality, but of every major religion and wisdom tradition. There's this great Serbian phrase, be humble, you're made from the earth. Be noble, you come from the stars. Another I love from, comes from the Indian guru, Nisargadatta Maharaj. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between the two, my life flows. Over the years, feminists and scholars of color have have leveled serious critiques of the way humility can be a cover for patriarchy or supremacy when it promotes servility in oppressed populations. But true humility is neither a feeling of superiority nor inferiority, which are really two sides of the same coin. It's neither inflation nor deflation of the self, but simply resting in the truth of our humanity. We are flawed and finite beings, beautiful creatures made in the image of our creator, beloved children of God and sinners at the same time, capable of great good and great evil. We are not inferior or superior. We are simply human. No more, no less. One of my favorite jokes about humility it's about a guy who's sitting at a bar talking to the bartender and he says, you know, my life, it's so hard. I know that I'm nothing, but I'm all that I can think about. <laughs> C.S. Lewis once wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Jesus embodied humility in a new and more radical way. He was not just uninterested in self-importance, status, or entitlements, but identified himself so deeply with the people whom society had despised that he became despised himself. This was his definition of humility. He constantly emptied himself for the sake of others, especially the most vulnerable, the children, the sick, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the forgotten. We don't really like this kind of humility today. We talk a lot about vulnerability, but this kind of humility, many find it detestable, like the philosophers of old. We reject it. But Jesus embraced this kind of radical humility to the point that he gave his life away, humbly in solidarity with the lowest of humanity, 
scorned and derided, mocked and ridiculed, tortured and executed between two thieves. There's a legend about an Egyptian monk named Macarius who was living as a spiritual leader of a small African village. And one day, a woman came to see him because she had become pregnant out of wedlock and was terrified about her, how her family and her town would react. She knew she'd be rejected and despised and scorned and ostracized by the entire community. And Macarius uh, was moved with compassion for her. And he said, today, God has taught me that I have a wife and child. Macarius could not free her from disgrace, but he could walk the road of disgrace with her. And so he told the woman that he would tell the town the child was his, subjecting himself to scorn, sacrificing his reputation for her. When the news came out, the community was scandalized. Everyone was furious and turned on Macarius. He was forced to resign his position and begin working as a laborer to provide for the woman and her child. As the delivery approached, the woman began having significant difficulties and believed that God was punishing her for allowing Macarius to bear her shame. And so she went out and told the village the truth, and everyone was humbled, astonished, and one by one they came to ask Macarius for his forgiveness. The humility of Macarius, the humility of Jesus, is a humility that identifies so deeply in solidarity with the scorned and mistreated of humanity that they too become scorned and mistreated. It's the kind of humility that not only lives our lives for the sake of others, but literally and sacrificially gives its life for others. This kind of radical humility has the power to break the endless cycle of violence in our world and give birth to a new creation and a new community. It's the virtue our world needs now more than any other and that our church needs now more than any other. The challenge of Palm Sunday is not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less and other people more. It forces us to ask ourselves, am I willing to give my life away in love for other people? And if so, how far am I willing to go? Am I willing to be scorned for others? Am I willing to be ostracized for others? Am I willing to be rejected for others? Am I willing to be despised for others? Am I willing to be betrayed and abandoned and denied by my friends for the sake of others? Am I willing to be arrested and imprisoned for others? Am I willing to be tried and mocked and beaten and tortured for others? Am I willing to give my life away as a sacrifice for others. The cross eviscerates all our schemes, all our pride and delusions, all our pretensions. It is heavy and demanding, earth-shattering, awe-inducing, and tremendously humbling. It will bring us to our knees if we have the courage to reflect on its mystery. But it also has the power to be clarifying and liberating. Because if we can learn to follow in the way of Jesus, to give our lives for the sake of others, regardless of what it costs us, then we will not only discover humility, but we will find meaning beyond meaning in this world as our existence becomes about something bigger than ourselves. And this, this is the thing that causes the story of Jesus, to shake off the dust of history, to jump up 
off the page and to come back to life before our eyes and in our lives. Amen.